Boys, we are very excited tonight to have Joe Feldman on Ed's Not Dead. Hey, Joe, how's it going? Great. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let our listeners find out about you, hear about your background. Joe has worked in education at the local level and national levels for over 20 years in both charter and district school contexts as a teacher, principal, and district administrator. He's been the director, director of charter schools for New York City Department of Education, the director of K-12 instruction in Union City, California, and was a fellow to the chief of staff for U.S. Secretary of Education Richard Riley. Joe is currently CEO of Crescendo Education Group. You can find them, fellows, at crescendogroup.org. That's mm-hmm. right, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a Crescendo cons- Ed Group. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Thank you, Casey. A consulting organization that partners with schools and districts to help teachers use improved and more equitable grading and assessment practices. All right. You guys ready for this lineup? Joe graduated from Stanford, Harvard Graduate School of Education, and NYU Law School. All right. He's a big show off. Yeah. Uh, he is the author of several articles on grading and assessment and the author of Teaching Without Bells, What We Can Learn from Powerful Practice in Small Schools. He lives in Oakland with his wife and two children. Once again, Joe, it's great to have you on the show. So I want to zoom out a little bit and talk to us and our listeners about how grading has evolved Um and really kind of, I know it's a massive kind of question, but why we do it, how we do it, the way that we currently do it in schools. Yeah, well, um, so grading actually hasn't evolved very much. Uh, while nearly everything in our schools has radically changed over the past century, um, grading is virtually the same. If you look at report cards from the early 1900s and you look at them today, they're almost identical, except now it's printed out instead of kind of handwritten. Um, Every course is listed, and there's a percentage score and a letter grade. Um, And really, we grade the way that we were graded. Um, And what else would you expect from teachers? Because um, teachers normally get no training on how to grade when they're in graduate school, Mm -hmm. Um, very little explicit conversations when they're in in schools. Um, So we really have no choice but to replicate the way we were graded. Um, And, you know, grades are used to make many significant decisions about students, including promotion and college admissions and scholarships and athletic eligibility and and academic program. Um, But, you know, for all of us who are in schools, because we want to make sure every student has an opportunity for success, it's really a surprise to learn that many of the common ways that we grade are often outdated and inaccurate and undermine what we're trying to do in our classrooms. Yeah. So you wrote a book, Grading for Equity, which thanks for sending along our way, by the way. Um, And in the prologue, you talk about Mallory as sort of like a case study for um, a principal or a new principal. And you talk about her attempts to address the grading practices with some teachers and saying, oh, this seems like it would make sense. Let's change this one or two things. Um, And yet teachers, in her experience, reacted very differently. Defensively, <laughs> they didn't like it. Viscerally, yes. uh, you know, um, surprise. Which, yeah, which is not at all uncommon. So, you know, why why is grading so intensely personal for educators? It's not, you know, one of those things that we can just have a rational conversation about. It, it is it's personal, almost like a reflection of of themselves. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple reasons. One is that 
um, you know, and all the different expectations placed on teachers and mandates from, mm-hmm. you know, at the school and district and, and federal level and state levels uh, and all the curriculum that they're expected to do. Grading is their last island of autonomy, I like to call oh, it. That's, it's, that's, it's that's the really last well said, thing. yeah. Yeah, it's the last thing that they own entirely and can bring all of their professional judgment to. And it's even protected in a number of uh, district regulations and state regulations mm-hmm. where nobody can override a teacher's grade. Yep. And That's so true. they protect it really vigilantly, which I, I totally get. I was the same way as a teacher. Um, but it, And it's so interwoven into what they believe is important for students and, and what they're trying to teach in their class. And so it, it's often very hard to, to broach that kind of a conversation with teachers. So in, in, in terms of that, so we're thinking from a school leader's perspective, whether you're on a leadership team or administrative team, where do you see the intersection between mandating specific grading practices and respecting the professional judgment of educators? Where, where do you find that balance? Yeah, well, you know, we don't need or really want teachers to be in total lockstep when it comes to grading or anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of what makes it a profession. Um, but we at least want there to be coherence, uh, which means shared beliefs and approaches um, and education about grading. But we are so far away from that in most schools. Every teacher does grading differently based on their own personal beliefs, and that inconsistency leads to a lot of inequities and even unreliability of a grade. So, you know, you could have two students, um, or you could have two teachers teaching the same course, uh, maybe Algebra 1, and they're actually in adjacent classrooms. Uh, yeah. Same textbook, same uh, curriculum, same, maybe even same assessments, uh, same training, similar students. And you could have students perform identically. They know exactly the same amount of math content, right. but they get different grades because one teacher is taking off for late work and the other's not. And one teacher is, you know, giving participation points and another one gives extra credit. And so it starts to undermine the validity and the amount we can rely on teachers' grades as, as accurate. And I, I guess going back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of how it has changed, I can distinctly remember, as a, even as a middle and high school student, knowing how to play the game a little bit with certain teachers 20 years ago. Why, why, do you think, why do you think grading and grading practices has not changed in any real substantive manner? Yeah, I, don't, I, I can't quite figure out whether we're avoiding the topic because it's too sensitive or we're overlooking it because we just think it's just a simple you know, adding up the points and it's numerator over denominator of possible points and that's the percent. And so what's the worth of spending our time on it? And I think because we're overlooking it or avoiding it, we're allowing these traditional practices to continue to operate and and not recognizing how much how much we could improve them and how much continuing to use them undermines a lot of what we want teaching and learning to look like. So zooming back out to to reform in this area. You've been around, you've done so many things in different districts and systems across the country. What is, what is real kind of, you know, stakeholder involved reform look like on this topic? I'm always curious about what voice parents have in it, because as you mentioned, the, the import that grades have on, on kids future, they're getting into college, they're playing sports parents are highly concerned about grades. How do systems have reasonable conversations about changing grading practices? As you've said, they're so outdated. 
Yeah, well, I think part of it is a real focused uh, parent education component. I mean, where this has been most successful, the principal or even at the district level, they will um, deliberately schedule ways that parents can learn more about this, either in newsletters that go out or information sessions or um, kind of focus groups. I mean, there's just lots of ways to help bring them along. Because you remember, you know, parents only have their own experience. Um, they're not educators, and so right. they think that grading should just be the way they were graded. And, and when it's suggested that that would change, it makes a lot of parents nervous. What, what we've found is that when parents are engaged in the conversation, we start to talk about some of the problems and ways it could be better. Right. They are totally for it and yeah. feel like this will give them much more confidence in, in the grading. And we've talked about this on, on, on our show with uh, folks like Rick Wormley where – it was what is what are grades? Grades are communication. They're supposed to communicate performance on a specific task. But for some, it seems it's gotten to a point where it's well, I, I don't want to say it, it's generalizing, but there there are folks out there who use it as a tool to for compliance. They use it as a tool for um, you know I I, I don't want to say I, I don't. I think revenge is too strong of a word. Okay, like, uh, by, by, the, by the way, Joe, Casey hates grades. Just so you know, we need to be full disclosure about that. Just kidding. Yeah, it's true. I do hate grades. Uh, because they, they've gone so far afield from what the purpose of grades and education are. So, yeah. and I, I don't have a, a I don't have is a, there, a, is there, is there a question in there? There's no question in there. I was I just adding to yeah. the... Joe will figure something out. Yeah. Go ahead, Joe. Well, no, I mean, I, I think... You know, the irony is that grades are so important and we're, and every decision that happens in a classroom is somehow related to a grade because the teacher has to decide for anything I ask a student to do, am I going to grade it or not? And if so, how much is it worth? Right. Um, but most teachers detest the act of grading. Um, and I think <laughs> that is, part that of it is pure because, irony. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is because they just don't, they, they feel like it's not helping them. Um, and when they can understand ways to grade that actually promote uh, accuracy and promote motivation and are less biased, I think they really feel like, oh, finally, I've got a way to grade that aligns with how I think about curriculum design and, and instruction. Right. And so, so maybe we're kind of beating around the bush here, but what, what are your recommendations for, you know, the most effective either grading practices or reform? I mean, are you promoting standards-based grading or, or, you know, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, a lot of it is similar to standards-based grading where you're really using a grade to describe only the level of content mastery a student has. Mm -hmm. So if a student, you know, you're excluding things like the participation that a student might have uh, or you're not including extra credit um, or, you know, the idea that, um, and if you've talked to Wormelli and other folks, you know that the idea that if a student started out, you know, learning how to write a persuasive essay and was getting an F on the first attempt and a C on the next one and an A by the time they were done, um, you wouldn't average those grades together. You would just give the student the final score because that's their level of mastery. And if you average performance over time, you actually dampen um, the growth that students show. Right. So a lot of those aspects. But what what I'm trying to help um, bring to the surface more explicitly is how to make it more equitable and that it's not just the idea that you want to be sort of mathematically thoughtful. Mm -hmm. It's that you actually want to do things that take out some of the implicit and institutional biases that are in our grading. So an example is related to the averaging. So if I if I take those two students, one student who did poorly at the beginning and then better and then well at the end, and take another student who got straight A's from the very beginning, 
what I might find is that the student who got straight A's at the beginning actually went to a sort of a summer class, maybe the, the summer before at the local university where they learned to write a persuasive essay. And so they, of course, do well at the beginning. And the other student who maybe went and stayed with their grandparent in North Carolina and then came in and had no right. idea what a persuasive essay is, is getting F's at the beginning. So it, there's a stronger motivation to think more critically when you think about how the the traditional system and the one that we use now often um, perpetuates the inequities and punishes students for lack of resources and rewards the one that the ones that have them. So I don't know if it's a follow-up to that, but so you wrote a whole book called grading for equity. <laughs> We've not really asked explicit questions about it. So I'm going to ask the biggest, broadest question possible, but how kind of frame, how is grading an equity issue? So we've talked a little bit about, um, good grading practices and reflecting knowledge and all that, but how how does that translate it to to being such a critical equity issue? Yeah, so uh, one example is the way that I just described, how you wouldn't be punishing students for a weaker education background. Um, another way is that by excluding things like um, participation, what it's raising our awareness of is that when we grade a student's behavior, we're imposing on it um, a, a bias lens. So, you know, uh, in participation categories, teacher will grade students on, like, how well are you paying attention, or are you asking good questions, or are you prepared, or um, what's your sort of behavior in the classroom? And they do that because they feel like, oh, I want students to be well-behaved. I want students to be prepared. And so I give students points for those things. Right. And, the, and the problem is, is that I'm what I usually am doing is I'm projecting what I think successful learning looks like for me and then imposing that those characteristics on my students and want to see those same things. And because of implicit bias, I'm actually perceiving students differently based on their race or their gender um, or, any, or many other characteristics. And so I might actually be, and the research shows that this actually happens, I might be downgrading students based on behaviors because I'm seeing those behaviors through a biased lens um, based on a student's race or gender. Mm. Um, and so in, in doing those things, I'm building in biases and inaccuracies into my grade, where in fact I need to exclude everything having to do with participation because by including those things or by excluding them, I'm actually making my grading less inequitable and more equitable. So you, you talked about kind of that numerical ethical behavior would have you seen the 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 quote-unquote 50 percent rule across the nation joe where you eliminate zeros is that would that be would that be an equitable practice that you would consider that you think would would help kids and teachers yeah it's it's better um okay. and what that's really addressing is the disproportion the, the way that our zero to 100 scale is disproportionately oriented toward failure right so even if you think about it on its face you know zero to 59 or 60 is failure right and so we've got a scale that's got two almost two-thirds of it d- designed to describe 60 levels of failure <laughs> where only 40 levels of success which right. is not the message we want to send oh that's a great um, way to put it when you say it that yeah. way it makes it it makes it <laughs> yeah. a lot more probable 60 maybe. levels but, of failure. but, 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 but <laughs> yeah. i hear i hear in your voice though you think it's kind of you you don't think it's the it's not any kind of panacea though or anything it's 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 a good step it's a step in the right direction 
Right, and I actually think that the zero to four is a better system. Okay. Um, because I think with the zero to one hundred scale, you just run into all kinds of problems throughout. And, right. And, you know, the zero to one hundred scale, we we didn't always have that. It, it came into vogue in the Industrial Revolution when we were very interested in precision. Mm-hmm. And so it just doesn't really serve any purpose if you think if you ask a teacher, well, tell me the difference between a student who's at a seventy four and a student who's at a seventy five. Well, nothing except <laughs> one is a percent higher than the other. Right. So we actually want to reduce the number of gradations to make it a lot more clear, and that's why using a zero to four scale is it's you know it's the GPA scale. It's just very much much more simple and straightforward to say you're at a B level or a C level or a C plus um, than to do these minute de- uh, gradations. And that that's that's. Um one of the the program that Robbie did his dissertation on project success a little plug there we when i designed the when, when ginger and i designed the uh, my one of my colleagues designed the 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 curriculum basically for it we switched to a standards based system on a scale of 1 to 5 so it, it didn't so it's similar to the 1 to 4 i guess in that you're looking at a smaller scale of what sure. students can can score on on a given standard and we split up our assignments based on that that particular scale. So a given assignment might be three different columns in the grade book, but all graded on a scale of five. And it, we found it to be much more helpful in terms of students taking ownership of the skill attainment that they're trying to figure out and taking more ownership of just improving their specific skill sets individual on individual standards. That's right. And what you probably found and what teachers find when they do that and they start to think about it this way is that they get students away from their um, overt focus on points, right. and the accumulation of points, and they start speaking in the language of the discipline. So yes. students won't, they stop saying, oh, I'm two points away from an A. How can I get four more points? The grade um, grubbing. <laughs> right. That all goes away, in fact, because now you're really explicit with students through the use of rubrics or, right. or other kinds of ways to say, okay, you're at a C level and you need to get to a B level. And the student then starts to say, oh, I need to, you know, the B level of showing uh, competence of the FOIL method yep. means that I know how to do X, Y, and Z, and I don't quite know how to multiply a negative exponent. And once I figure out how to do that, I'll be at the B level. And I, I will never forget the time when I had a student come up to me and after we had instituted the standards-based and, and literally looked at all his grades over a period of a couple of weeks and was like, Mr. Siddons, I, I think I need to work on my claim writing. And it was, I had never, in eight years of teaching, I had never experienced that before. It was always, how can I get an A or how can I get a B? Um, and that was just a slight practice. And, and on, as an addendum to that comment, I want to ask you as we start closing up here, if we have a lot of teachers that listen to us and a lot of teachers want to know what's, what are some, quick wins that I can get to start moving in this direction because what you're saying I'm sure resonates with a lot of people. Um, what's one thing a teacher can start to, to begin grading for equity and what's one thing that they should stop? Um, well, this is all easier said than done. Um, <laughs> teachers, Change but, your beliefs yeah. Yeah, completely. Some, some, some easy first things um, or at least kind of first level of things that teachers can do is they can stop um, doing things like extra credit, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. where you know extra credit oftentimes is just a way for teachers to just create more points in the system, right? Um, and satisfy the student who just wants to compensate for not having been able to do something earlier, right? Um, and I think that sort of contributes to the to the 
problem that teachers claim, like, oh, my students are just so consumed with points. They only talk about points. Well, stop then. Stop doing it. Stop uh, feeding the monster. Right. Stop right. Giving, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Stop making getting the grade about points. Um, and I think that, you know, for teachers who really want to think about this, to, to really think about the zero to four scale and how that might look in their, in their grading. Um, you know, what's, what makes this uh, doubly hard is that the software, the grading software that we use, yep. is all oriented and designed, hardwired designed to, for example, average performance over time. Yes, it is. And to put in a percentage, yep. you know, they convert everything to percentage. So there's a lot of headwind um, against teachers really trying to make their grading more equitable. Um, and it becomes all that more important then for teachers to really work with each other and, you know, not to do this in isolation if they can help it, but sort of team up and really get some critical friends to think about this. Mm-hmm. Wow, Joe, this has been incredible, right, guys? Yeah, we Thank really you. appreciate you coming on. All right, so get, awesome. so for our listeners, get us up to speed on what you're doing right now, where they can find you, anything specifically that you're working on that you'd like to share with our audience. Sure. So um, there's a website that's a companion to the book, gradingforequity.org. Uh, okay. And there, teachers or anybody can download uh, the prologue and first chapter for free, and they can also find out you know, some other resources and models that other teachers have used, um, as well as I'm going to be launching uh, an online course starting in January nice. um, that will give teachers opportunity to you know, watch videos and do some exercises and even have some virtual meetups with other teachers doing this work. Awesome. Uh, and on Twitter? No? Yes? Yeah. Uh, I'm That's at how we Joe. connected. That's how we yeah. found Joe? Okay, cool. Go ahead, Joe. Uh, at uh, Joe C, as in Charles Feldman, at Joe C. Feldman. And the hashtag is grading for equity. Grading for equity. Okay. Well, this has been terrific. Thanks for coming on Ed's Not Dead. We will get that information out. You're going to tweet that out right now, right, Casey? Absolutely. All right. Um, And hopefully we can get you back on the show again. Best of luck in the future. Thanks, Joe. Great. Thank thank you, guys. And have a great uh, ramp up to Thanksgiving and into winter break. All right. Thanks, Joe. Much appreciated. See ya.